Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Welcome to the Bud Zone. Please give a listen as we talk with our buds in the faith about the present rule and reign of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords in his church and over his world. Thomas Doolittle, how should we eye eternity so that it may have its influence on all we do, Lord? Forgive the lack of compassion in me that can stand and see this madness in the world. As if the most of men had lost their wits and were quite beside themselves, and yet my affections yearn no more towards immortal souls that are going to unseen miseries in the eternal world. To see foolish, unthinking men busy in doing things that tend to no account. Is it not such an amazing sight as to see men that have reason for the world, to not use it for God and Christ and their own eternal good? To see them love and embrace the present ash heap world, and cast away all serious, affecting and effectual thoughts of the life to come. To see them rage against the God of heaven, and cry out against holiness as foolish preciseness, and serious godliness as madness and melancholy. Let us call the whole creation of God to lament and bewail the folly of man that was made the best of all God's visible works. But now by such wickedness is bad beyond them all, being made by God for an everlasting state, and yet minds nothing less than that for which he was principally made. Welcome to this episode of the Bud Zone Podcast. I am honored that you're listening, and I am especially honored to have, for the second time, no less, the Dr. Andrew Sandlin joining me. Doc Sandlin, thank you so much for coming back. It's it's really <laughs> impressive to me that you would visit a second time with me. Well, thank you for having me, Bud, and allowing me to be one of your illustrious, or maybe I should say notorious, uh, <laughs> guests. I appreciate all that you're doing, and I hear about your great work, and uh, I appreciate uh, your faithfulness to the Lord and using this medium for his kingdom. Well, that's uh, that's what we hope, and I, I, I am encouraged by the things that you are doing. I wish we were going to be talking about marriage, because you've been posting uh, marriage here lately but that's, that's another podcast. podcast that's another one so i may i may indulge you to to come back at some time and let's discuss that because i really like what you're writing there uh here recently but uh do this real quickly if you will give people uh, an introduction to yourself uh where they can find your content and the things that you're involved in so that they they know if they haven't heard the first podcast i'll link back to it and i'll link to all the places they can find your great work Thank you for that opportunity, bud. Boy, as time goes on, that answer gets longer and longer, but I'll take a <laughs> shot at it. So. That's okay. We got, I've got all the time you've got. So. Okay. Well, I lead a, a 22 or was it 23 year old Christian uh, think tank, uh, educational foundation center for cultural leadership. The uh, address is Christian culture written, of course, solidly as one word, christianculture.com. You can learn about CCL there. Uh, my blog is Doc Sandlin, again, just written as one word, DocSandlin.com. You can uh, subscribe there. I also write a weekly or sometimes every other week um, Substack uh, letter called The Culture Change. It's a lot of people charge for Substack. I don't. Uh, you can just sign up, just go to Substack Culture Change, and you can subscribe to that and get all of those. And then, um, my uh, lectures and sermons, talks, and so on are available on iTunes. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel. Just 
you know, uh, type my name in there and you'll find the YouTube channel. Also go to Amazon and got a whole set of authors books, uh, hard copy as well as digital. Um, you can get those as well as a monthly uh, hard copy, unique hard copy newsletter called Culture Change. That one you'd have to send me a, um, a Facebook private message and I'll get you on the mailing list. So I think that maybe I'm missing something, but I think that's about all of them, bud. Okay. Well, <laughs> praise God, you've covered everything. Uh, and that's good because we need this kind of teaching out there. The church is, uh, honestly in a desperate yes. condition right now. And what we're going to talk about today is a book that you recently edited. Well, I don't say recently edited, but was recently published by yes. your uh, Center for Cultural Leadership. It is called Failed Church, Restoring a Vision of Ecclesial Victory. And I had gotten, I think, the, I, think I got the digital version first, and then mm -hmm. when it was available on uh, Amazon as a printed copy, I got that. Um, and you were gracious and kind enough to send me a copy, which is endorsed. I think I told you it is now in my special library of <laughs> autographed editions. So thank you for that. But let me ask you something. Yes. You've, I mean, this is a provocative title, Failed yes. Church. Yes. Have you gotten any heat for that? I mean, that's not very winsome, doctor. Yeah, that's boy. That's the new evangelical buzzword, isn't it? We can't do <laughs> oh, it unless it's winsome. No yes, for sure. Uh, if you'd like, I can give, and perhaps this is a good way to start, sort of a background of how the book came about. Well, that's yeah. I was going to ask you what prompted this. Yes. Well, um, I'm a cultural theologian, which means I'm really interested in applying the faith in culture. So, CCL and I are not uh, don't devote a lot of time to the internal workings of churches, though that's very important, and I don't want to negate that. But rather, uh, the church's role in society and in a culture and its cultural responsibility. Well, the seeds of this book actually uh, were in uh, uh, 2020 with this sort of perfect storm of the COVID lockdown orders that so many churches just quickly and extensively bowed to. And then, of course, in the wake of the George Floyd killing, the sort of revival of Black Lives Matter. And uh, in that case, also, the church surrendering and giving in to all sorts of support for reparations and uh, advocating the idea of uh, the problem, so-called problem of white supremacy and so on. And then the churches giving in to cancel culture and wokeness in general and so on. Uh, it occurred to me, and it was actually, but even though I knew at the time the church was in a very poor state, it even surprised me how quickly so many churches, and I'm speaking specifically here, not of the liberal churches, we know they're not even Christian, but so many supposed uh, conservative and even many Reformed or Presbyterian or Reformed Baptist, you know, Re Reformationals type of churches uh, surrendered to these evils. And it occurred to me that what we were seeing was not the failure of the church then, but the fruits of a failure that had been going on for decades. And it just took these particular episodes, kind of traumatic episodes in 2020 and 21, mm -hmm. to reveal the rot that had been there all along. So I thought I'd just contact a number of friends and uh, sharp guys uh, that I know, writers and scholars and thinkers, and ask them to contribute on a particular topic. And Yes, the book's been provocative, but I think most would agree whether they agree with the content or not. It's a very wide-ranging book, deals with all sorts of topics and all sorts of problems. Uh, so that's basically the genesis uh, of that book. What's wrong and uh, what things we can do to fix it. So, and that was one of my questions because it's an edited book. And I mentioned to you that I have, I had Levi Secord. Uh, I've done a recording with him. That'll be a podcast that is released um, asking about how his uh, connection with you came about. Um, and he's talking in his chapter about worldview. He opened up. It really stimulated me when I was reading through the index or the chapter content, he's quoting, uh, Francis Schaefer. And I'm like, Oh goodness. Okay. This piqued my, my interest, but you've got, um, I think you've got another, like 15 other men that have contributed chapters to this did you assign topics to each 
of these guys based on what their kind of theological specialty or cultural insight might be? Is that the content is driven by what you've assigned? Yeah, I, I wouldn't use the term quite use the term as strong as sign, but I just kind of requested. I mean, I know what their strengths were. Yeah. Uh, like, um, I know George Grant was a great man of prayer, so he dealt with the problem of prayerlessness. Of course, Gary DeMar on uh, eschatology. Eschatology, yeah. I knew that uh, your friend there in uh, Florida, Yuri Brito, had just completed a doctorate and had written on his topic, which is the problem of radical individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, in the church, and then uh, Joe Boot, uh, whom you do know, I think might have been on your program before. Yeah, uh, he um, he really fought a battle in Canada, and actually the the COVID lockdown problem for churches was even worse in Canada than it was here. He was one of the leaders of the movement to stand against these tyrannical uh, orders of Justin Trudeau and the various provinces. So I had him right on that, uh, and a number of others. But yeah, I mean. If I not quite a sign, but I requested, and all of them were very gracious and said, "Sure, we'd be happy to write on that topic." So, yeah, certainly the content was driven by what I would have liked to have seen in the book, and I'm, by God's grace, pretty happy with the product. Well, it, it's it's remarkable, and like you said, it covers a gamut of different issues. That was what you know Levi's thing with the uh, Francis Schaeffer bits and pieces, but it all comes. I mean, we need to subsume this content under what's the What's the worldview? What's the responsibility of the church? Why have we failed in this area, in this area, in this area, in this area? Yes. And and that's what you've addressed. In fact, let me, I just want to read, I'm, I want people to get this book. Um, the back, uh, you know, the back of the book says COVID lockdowns, the George Floyd killing, subsequent riots, Black Lives Matter, cancel culture, critical race theory, Me Too movement, the pervasiveness of gender dysphoria. These and other recent spectacles have exploded on the social scene. But the church has not eluded their virulent infection. Uh, church in 2022 looks significantly different from its 2015 iteration, even though then signs of impending infection were not absent. And Doc Sandlin, when you the the dedication of the book is to all the pastors and churches that took a stand in the evil days of 2020 2021. Do you think uh, now, obviously what you're not saying is that here we are in 2022 and we're still in the midst of evil days, Yes, but do you think that most of the churches got this wrong? You put this book out because they're not thinking holistically about the faith once for all delivered. I've given a lot of thought to that, but that's a very good question. And, um, I'm far from one of those, like Elijah who says, you know, we're the only ones left standing. (laughs) Um, but I think an objective analysis would be that a significant majority of U.S. conservative churches have failed on one or more of these, and generally all of them. Uh, when people complain to me, including pastors of good churches, boy, the church is in such a bad state today. I have to agree with that. Yeah, I think this. Uh, I think that's why this church is very relevant. I hope that many pastors, church leaders, laymen too, but particularly church leadership will read it. And I hope that they're sufficiently uh, rebuked. And I don't say that in any haughty way at all, but I hope in a humble way rebuked to go back and reconsider their lack of worldview, their lack of allowing the Bible to shape their entire thinking, not just what goes on in their sort of study and in their individual prayer meetings and in their Sunday school classes, but how the church is to respond to a a decadent culture and not allow that culture to infect the church. I hope it'll lead them to rethink some of these things. So that's one of the objectives, I guess, the, the main objective of the book. Well, one of the things that I just loved, and it's almost at the end of the chapter that you wrote for your own edited book, and it's the last chapter in the book, but you ask the question, uh, what is God doing in the world? Yes. Now, before we delve into your answer to that, because you give two two answers to it, but before we delve into that, if do you think that if you were to ask the average, let me let me put it this way, the average person sitting in the pew and the average pastor in the pulpit, do you think either one of them are able to give an adequate answer of what God is doing in the world? Uh, you, this is I mentioned earlier. You're a good interviewer. You've you've just pinpointed a fundamentally important question, and I would have to answer that by saying no. I'll often ask, you know. 
we often use that expression, what in the world? Well, I'm kind of turning that a little bit and say, what in this world, what in this world is God doing? And I'd have to say that most of them will give the wrong answer. You know, though, Bud, that question really does focus attention on, in many ways, the fundamental issue that we could ask. Uh, I know all of us are interested in our personal salvation, and that, of course, is vital, too. Uh, we're saved by trusting in Christ, but God's work in the world's bigger than us. Yeah. Uh, and so when we ask ourselves that question and we force people to answer that question, what in this world is God doing? Then that uh, kind of uh, obliges people to think about their entire worldview. And I must say that I believe most of them would fail and some of them fail spectacularly in giving the right answer. Yeah, it's the it's the issue of and you know I encounter when I when I talk with guys and 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 uh, discuss the issue of faith with people who are professing Christians, and the question uh, necessarily becomes, well, you got saved, the Lord saved you. We understand sovereignty and salvation, and we understand grace, and um, but He saved you, and the moment you were saved, He didn't suck you off the planet, right. Why did he leave you here? What's the point? And a lot of a lot of people don't understand that. And and of course, the whole book that you put together here kind of addresses that in different different categories, different spheres. I guess if you if you want to say it that way. But in your book, you answer that that question. It is just brilliant because, of course, you are are brilliant. But you I'm give fooling people, a lot of people, bud. Huh? No, well. <laughs> Lord shows grace, so just go with it. Okay? Amen. Um, but you give two answers, and I love this because when you and I talked before on my podcast, one of the things that you and I discussed, I, I wanted you to expound on, and you did, you did, was the connection between what we would call maybe the cultural mandate and the Great Commission. And, of course, I got a lot of response from that. A, a lot of people don't see it. No, these two, okay, that's fine, but you need to study. You, you need to meditate. Yeah. You need to pray through it. In this case, you asked the question, what is God doing in the world? And you've given two answers, and neither answer is wrong, but one is more thorough and I think more complete than the first answer. And the first one was, you know, there is this Genesis 3 kind of Christianity, yeah. and then you expand on that and say, but the other answer is the Genesis 1 and 2 Christianity. Yes. Would, you, would you explain those two things? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I think that's, you've really touched on something that's vital, absolutely vital to Christianity in the world. So by Genesis 3 Christians, I mean those who essentially begin by thinking about the fall. They look around, they see that there's sin in the world. They know that uh, the Bible teaches all of sin and falls short of God's glory. And that the main message of the Bible is that uh, God sent his son to die on the cross, atone for our sins, rise again from the dead so that he could save us. And as uh, Calvinists, we believe save the elect. Uh, and of course, if the Arminians would say, you know, gospel's available to everybody. But in either case, the point is that uh, Jesus Christ died and rose again to save us and also to sanctify us. So we live a faithful life and we church, get other people converted by evangelizing so that we can all prepare to be with the Lord one day and have eternal life. Uh, that answer, as you indicated, is not a wrong answer. Uh, those, I would say, are the Genesis 3 Christians, because basically their view of the Christian life essentially begins with the fall and the effects of the fall and uh, how God in Christ overcomes the fall. Uh, now let's go to Genesis 1 and 2 Christians. Genesis 1 and 2 Christians don't really negate that at all, but that's only part of their answer. They embrace uh, what I consider to be, and others, the full biblical worldview. Um, well, I should say a summary of the full, which is creation all redemption. So the reason that the Bible begins in Genesis 1 rather than Genesis 3 is because creation is the foundation of all that God's doing in the world. Yeah. So God creates everything. He creates it very good the way it's supposed to be. There's nothing lacking. Uh, he did create it so that it would develop and grow, and that's why we have the cultural mandate that you mentioned before. Uh, a plant should mature and man should mature, but there's no sin. 
It's just beautiful in the way it should be. But of course, and I won't go into the details, most of your listeners would know Satan enters in the form of a serpent and seduces Adam and Eve, and they sin, but that leads the entire uh, creation into a sin, uh, into um, uh, to the fall. And uh, sadly, creation is cursed, even though creation itself, the non-human creation itself, didn't sin, yet because man's a federal head, it also bears the sin. Right. And then, of course, there's the promise of Genesis 3.15, that first great proto-evangelium or proto-evangelium, the great promise, the first gospel sermon that God preached in the Bible, that he would send his son, he uses a beautiful metaphor there about trampling the head, but he would send his son to defeat the power of Satan. Now, I think that's vital for people to understand that the gospel, the good news, isn't that Jesus died just to take away our sins and make us faithful people and take us to heaven. The gospel is the good news that God and Jesus Christ is overturning everything that Satan led Adam and Eve to do in the fall in Genesis 3. Uh, the gospel is a lot wider than individual salvation or soteriology because the fall was much wider than an individual fall. Now, if we understand that, bud, we will recognize that the goal of the gospel is to restore and enhance that beautiful creational world. The goal is not to cause us to escape and leave this world, but rather to redeem this world. So Genesis 1 and 2 Christians understand that the goal of redemption is the redemption of all of creation mm -hmm. presently under a curse. Unfortunately, Genesis 3 Christians understand basically that the goal of the gospel is to save individual sinners and those that, of course, they can impact and uh, one day take them away somewhere else to sort of uh, a, a high heavenly abode eternally away from this world, which really doesn't matter all that much. Now, however one answers that question that you asked earlier, uh, we asked earlier, what is God doing in this world? However one answers that question will radically shape the kind of Christian life he lives. Our Christian life will be determined by whether we're a Genesis 1-2 Christian or a Genesis 3 Christian. And it's not just theoretical, but when we have decisions to make every day, the kind of Christian we are, Genesis 1-2 or Genesis 3, will shape the decisions we make about our family, about our church, about our work, about our investments, about our entertainment, sports, whatever. It will shape our entire way of mm -hmm. thinking. That's how vital the answer to this question is. Well, I don't, you know, I thought about, uh, I, I would read from your chapter in the description that you give of each of those. I'm like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. I want to force people to go get it because they need to, <laughs> they need to cogitate the entire yeah. content of the argument that you're laying out. But, you know, just one thing I'm thinking about is, you know, when you look at the great commission and, and like I said, you and I discussed the relationship of cultural mandate to the great commission. Well, when you get to the great commission, the Lord is not saying, uh, go make disciples of every individual. He is, right. he is broader than that. He's talking about nations. Yes. Um, and, and of course the nations will be brought into submission to him. They will be his footstool. This is a, yes. a consistent promise throughout the new Testament that's drawn from the old Testament. Yes. Um, so there is this broad implication that is a result of the power of God in the gospel to save individuals, but to transform culture. I mean, that's yes. what your entire ministry is about is equipping, you know, transforming Christians to transform culture. And, and that's what this is dealing with. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned creation, fall redemption, but really what you, you uh, summarize in your chapter is creation, fall redemption and recreation. Yes. Because we're not looking forward merely to some ethereal kind of existence as a spiritual only, and we can get into kind of the Greek dualism if you want to. Yeah. We're not just looking forward to that. It's a new heaven and a new earth that is promised to us. Yes. That's uh, that exactly, but that's actually an aspect of that sort of creational understanding. I mean, the, what does the Bible say? The first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the rest of that chapter, it's all very material. It's all very tactile, corporeal. Uh, so to, to assume that we can have a faithful uh, gospel, a faithful doctrine or faithful uh, Christian exercise of the faith 
without taking into account that very physical created order is to ask for something that God never intended. And that's a part of the ancient Greek dualism and uh, the first great Christian heresy and the most dangerous of all, Gnosticism. Uh, it's remarkable how many Christians buy into the idea that the physical, including the physical body, but that which is physical, including extensions of that, cultural artifacts, and uh, we would say uh, social issues and politics, these, these things that are very uh, earthy, Mm -hmm. uh, as part of our earthy society, they are somehow secondary to God's plan. God's real plan is to save the human soul. And I think they define soul in a non-biblical way, this sort of ghost in the machine, this sort of thing inside you that's the real you, and the body is just sort of the automobile to cart around the real you on the inside. Well, that's a Greek idea. That's not a, a biblical idea. But so many Christians hold that idea. And because of that, when they look to eschatology, and you touched on this, uh, and the new heavens and new earth, the Bible's quite clear about that. Revelation, of course, is very symbolic, but nonetheless, Revelation 21 makes very clear that uh, the idea is not that eternally we go up to live with God in heaven and sort of just float around, but rather that God himself comes down to earth. Uh, this, there's a new heavens, which means a renewed heavens, a purged, a resurrected new heavens, a new earth. And God himself and Christ and the spirit come down in this new Jerusalem, the picture of the great heavenly city and dwells on earth. And the Bible says, and God's abode will be with men. Now think about the implications of that, bud. God loves his creation so much that God himself is willing to dwell eternally on a material world. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, well, God sort of looks down on, or if I may say so reverently, holds his nose up, that which is material, and because God doesn't have a body, therefore bodies are inferior, and God doesn't care about the material, just runs afoul of Revelation 21 and a number of other texts. God eternally has chosen to dwell among men, men with bodies, resurrected bodies, to be sure, but nonetheless, bodies and a resurrected earth. That really shows how interested God is in creation. And as you said, a recreation of the material order. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. Very good. Yes. Um, and the church at large seems to look at that almost in a sentimental, nostalgic kind of way, but it doesn't really have any impact now because we're on this side of the fall, but we're also on this side of the cross and we're also on this side of the, the redemptive implications of the cross. So you've got, you've got pulpits that don't have this sort of, uh, fully orbed worldview that starts at the very beginning of the Bible, like you're saying, it does. um, yeah. and it's not incomplete. It's not incorrect. I guess I should say it's not incorrect to have the understanding of the promise of the gospel, but it's in the context, it's in the framework of creation. That's right. Uh, and if we miss that, we don't understand uh, the dynamic of all that God's doing. And, and that was the thing with the Great Commission, too. He's talking about nations here. This th There's an yes. implication of that. You know, Paul in Romans is talking about the, the creation groaning under the effects of sin. And yes. we're going to see redemption from that. What you've laid out really is this sort of meta-narrative of Scripture. Um, and I, I want to ask you, I'm not going to quote from your book because I do want people to go get it and read it, but I'm going to quote something that you wrote, uh, on Twitter just a couple days ago, I okay. think, because I think it ties to this. So here's what you said. Many theological debates can't be solved by exegesis. And, and then you par parenthetically cite, uh, infant baptism, cessationism, millennialism, uh, and church government. They can't be solved by exegesis, not because exegesis is not is unimportant, it is all important, but because exegesis always presupposes a particular theological interpretation of the entire canon. Yes. All systematic theology should be governed by exegesis, but there could be no exegesis apart from systematic theology, and there never is. Now, I think that ties exactly to the way you're thinking as with what you've written in your in your chapter. But Expand on that. What What are you actually saying in terms of like a, <laughs> a 
a pew sitter like making grass. Oh, yeah, no, that's a good. <laughs> so, I mean, every time we read the Bible, uh, Bud, we bring assumptions about what the main theme of the Bible is. Uh, let me give you an example. We earlier in this podcast talked about Genesis 1 or 2 Christians versus Genesis 3 Christians. Yeah. Okay, you just mentioned the Great Commission. Let's say the account in Matthew 28. Well, let's think about it for a minute. If you're a Genesis 3 Christian, when you get to Matthew 28 and you see the Great Commission and you read that about, uh, literally, the Greek says, disciple the nations. But your first thought's going to be, oh, well, that obviously means we need to preach the gospel to people and get them converted and get them in church or start churches so that God's elect people will be what they should be and that we can meet him one day. So it's not so much that your exegesis is wrong, though in my view it is, as it is your prior understanding of what the Bible is all about influences mm -hmm. how you read that text. Yeah. So a Genesis 1 Christian, a Genesis 1-2 Christian would tend to read that text in a different way. Now, I am far from saying that exegesis is unimportant. I mean, everything begins with the exegesis of the text. But I have to say it doesn't end with the exegesis of the text because our general theology is going to influence our exegesis. Now, this is what is kind of like what some theologians call a hermeneutical spiral. So you, you, you read a particular text, you read it in terms of your biblical theology, but what if, your what if your systematic theology is mistaken? Well, if you read enough biblical texts and you interpret them properly, you may need to go back and change your general systematic theology. Yeah. So then when you read more texts, that systematic theology will more accurately help you interpret the text. But a big mistake is made when we just, uh, let me give you a prime example of this. Um, there are so, There's a very good uh, Bible study method of school. You may have heard of uh, BSF Bible Study Fellowship. Mm -hmm. It's a very widely used and uh, uh, prominent evangelical Bible study method. In fact, all over the world, thousands upon thousands, every week around the world, certain people read a biblical text. A group gets together in homes. They read biblical text and go over that text. One of the requirements of the founders many years ago is we don't read any other text in the Bible. We don't read any other books. We only read this particular text and decide what is God saying there. Well, I want to preface this by saying I'm glad when anybody is getting into the Bible, and I'm yeah. glad people are getting in their homes reading the Word of God. But I think that approach is fundamentally mistaken, <laughs> because we can never read the Bible in terms of an individual text. We will often say, well, make sure you read a text in its context. And of course, we all know if you take a text out of context, that can be a pretext. But I'd like to go on and say that the actually, the, the context of every text is the entire Bible. <laughs> we need to understand the main message of the Bible before we interpret a particular text. So it's not just what was Paul saying to the Ephesians, let's say, in Ephesians 1, about this glorious doctrine of uh, predestination, but what does this glorious doctrine of individual predestination have to do with what God is doing in the world in terms of the entire canon that he gave to us? And that's true of every other text, but also, so that's kind of what I was, kind of point that I was making. Yeah, you're not really um, attacking a particular hermeneutic. Really what you're calling out is the fact that you can't get lost in the trees. You've got to be able to see the entire forest of scripture, and you've got to understand the question we discussed earlier, what is God doing in history? What is God doing right now? That's what right. was he doing in scripture? And, and I mean, there are a lot of things he was doing in scripture and it was not all merely, uh, individual salvation. That's right. That's a huge part of it. But, um, so, I mean, you're pointing to the meta narrative essentially yes. that, that most churches don't get most, most pastors, most pulpits don't get this. And, and this is the weakness of the church today in responding to the 2022 or the 2020 crisis with COVID or the, the wokeism or any number of these issues that the church has been uh, faced with, they're not interpreting scripture in light of the fullness of scripture. Is that Boy, a fair that, way to say it? Yeah, that's, and I think that really is another <laughs> astute point. So essentially what happened and now I'm not talking about the, you know, the intentionally compromising or liberal churches, but let's take yeah. the good conservative church that largely was a Genesis uh, 3 church. 
they understand the Bible's teaching about individual salvation. There's expositional preaching, which is the right kind of preaching, expositing text. But they haven't given much thought to the broad systematic theology, or more importantly, maybe the whole biblical worldview. Well, that kind of Genesis 3 Christianity can survive okay as long as we're in a society when there, when, as, when there are not these very strong external uh, violent attacks, not just against the faith, but attacks on the church. Because if we've limited things to individual soteriology, everything outside of individual soteriology is not that important, uh, perhaps secondary, and need not be addressed. So what happens? Now think with me here. So then we have these COVID lockdown orders, and that comes along. If we haven't thought through the implication of sphere sovereignty and what is the church's role with respect to the state specifically, not mm -hmm. just a quick reading of Romans 13, but a worldview issue. And we haven't thought through what is the Christian view of race, the proper understanding of the relations between races. What is the biblical understanding uh, and how should we respond to a culture that wants to shut up Christians and cancel them? If we haven't already thought about these things, when we come along and there's an issue beyond individual soteriology, we really won't know how to handle it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we often will default to worldliness. And here's one of the greatest ironies of all, bud. Many of these churches strongly oppose worldliness, uh, sexual worldliness, uh, various abuses, and so on. They're very good on that point. But the problem is when these secular uh, worldly worldview ideas become very prominent. They're easily imported into churches, even churches that oppose worldliness, because they don't have a worldview that can stand against the secular worldview invading the church. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You end up necessarily not by intent, but you end up with a sort of syncretism between the faith and uh, worldliness because you don't have a comprehensive biblical worldview what you call really a creational worldview it is that's right yeah yeah um i mean you see this in well you're writing we mentioned earlier but you're writing about marriage this is not and and it's a provocative you know you're good at these provocative titles i think you called it what uh marriage is not a christian it's not christian marriage right yeah. um well same thing when we're dealing with the issue of of transgenderism we're that's dealing right. with a creational issue that's right. If the church is only starting in Genesis three and they, they can't connect it as Paul does so often in his writings, it goes back to creation. Um, yes. so there's this lack of, uh, understanding yes. of, the, of the whole forest of scripture, essentially. Yes. Let me give you an example that I know of a church, a dear friend of mine knows of a church. If he's attending there for a while, uh, sadly, uh, they had, a. Um, uh, it's often true, sadly, today. Uh, they had somebody in their youth group uh, battling so-called gender dysphoria, you know, claimed as a, a boy, young man, boy, whatever, yeah. teenager, claiming that didn't know exactly what he was and probably was a girl. And there was, they were going to go on a camp or something. And they sent out an email to everybody. Now, I just want everybody to know that so-and-so is like having questions about this and we want you to be very cautious about it. And, um, he, you know, we're not going to make a deal if he wants to use the girl's restroom and so on, because this is a, because this is about the gospel. This is about reaching out to people. Now think about that for a minute. Mm, mm. If you have defined uh, the Christian faith in terms of the gospel, where gospel is basically getting people saved and getting them to the cross rather than the broader creational worldview, worldview of what are God's standards for the cosmos, you're going to tend to fall into that. I know of a very prominent church in California, uh, once conservative, little by little has apostatized the last 20 years when the whole issue of same-sex marriage, I mean, same, it's not really marriage, but yeah, you know, same-sex marriage, <laughs> yeah. mirage, yeah, when it uh, came around, they said, well, I just want to know, we're not going to address that because it's not a gospel issue. This church is gospel-centered. We're not going to address that. Mm. Well, there are about 17 things wrong with that idea, but the main one is they don't understand the gospel. The gospel is rooted in the creational order, and the creational order includes man and woman equally created in the image of God, but not identical, not interchangeable, each with his and her own unique ways of thinking and acting and body parts, reproductive parts. That's part of the creational sure. order. 
And that is a part of the gospel because it's a part of creation. Well, be fruitful and multiply is sort of a subset of the cultural mandate. This is that's how you right. do it. That's right. And uh, that's a, uh, I'm not sure when this episode will drop, but I'm writing about that next week. By the time your folks hear this, I've, I think the title, if they want to go looking for it, it's going to be, um, uh, let me see, uh, hedonic infertility versus creational fruitfulness. See, I got to have my dictionary out again. <laughs> Uh, don't worry you when you read it you'll understand <laughs> all right well now let me ask you this because you said mm -hmm. something that i really uh, was very provocative to me in the book and it, it it has to do with you described that the medieval church collapsed soteriology into ecclesiology mm -hmm. and of course i'm not contesting you i thought that was brilliant because that's really what happened but that's continued. How has that not, how has that not been corrected from the days of, I mean, you would think that the reformation, which did speak to that and tried to recover that, but are we still in a church environment where those two things are the same? I mean, it's not that much different than Rome. Man, that, you know, that's actually a very good point for Rome. Of course, Everything, uh, soteriology is tied up in the sacramental system of the church. You stay yeah. in the church's good graces, and the church you know, believes in the seven sacraments. The Bible obviously does not teach that. But basically, you become justified when you're, the seed of justification is placed in you, when you're baptized, and then your justification grows throughout life, and you can lose that justification or salvation. But the point is that everything is church-centered. But you're right on this point, bud. Even many Protestants and evangelicals, the problem is for them, salvation is all about the church, getting into the church, the church programs. The Christian life is reduced to the institutional church. What they really lack is an understanding of the broadness and fullness of the kingdom of God. Or what some of them do, and this is true of a lot of the two kingdom people, they actually hold basically the same view Rome does. If you read Roman Catholic theology, they believe the church, their church, of course, yeah. is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God on earth is the Roman Catholic church. Well, of course, that's contrary to the Bible. That's utterly false. But I'm not picking on Rome alone. I would say that many Protestants hold the same thing about their church. Yeah. The kingdom of God is basically their church. And even if they wouldn't go that far, in effect, all that God is doing in the world, he's doing in the institutional church. Well, the church is vitally important, but it's only one aspect of the kingdom of God. And when we reduce the kingdom of God to the church, we actually reduce the faith because the faith is wider than the church. That is profound. And of course you deal with this more frequently than I do, but I can't tell you how many genuine believers that I engage with either in commentary on Facebook or private messages or personally they don't get that. That's the right. church is not the kingdom. The church yes. is a part of the kingdom. That's right. Well, yeah, no, no, that's right. If you hold that view, you're not going to have a robust view of uh, cultural responsibility. At the most, they will say as well, basically, the church trains people to think right. And so maybe they should, you know, vote right and uh, just act pretty well in society. But there's no idea of an aggressive working to bring all areas of life and thought, including all of culture, under the authority by the power of the Spirit, under the gospel and the authority of King Jesus. Yeah. Well, if you'll think about it, that's really to say we don't believe that Jesus Christ died to redeem all of creation. Yeah. He only died to bring sinners into the church and help them to become better Christians. But the faith is a lot bigger than that. The gospel is a lot bigger than that. Yeah. You can quickly devolve into moralism, and certainly right. Christianity is moral. But it's not moralism. That's right. Um, I mean, I know, I know atheists right now. They're very moral people. They're very That's upright, right. good citizens, and they do good works in a way that we might identify them as good works. But they have no value. Uh, you know, right. they're without faith. So, uh, and then the other issue, uh, pietism. I mean, yes. You know, I think that's an infection in the church. Your book speaks to that. You got a couple of guys that write to that. You you kind of speak to it. Uh, in your chapter, but uh, let me read to you. Th this is uh, something just to, I read all kind of stuff. Uh, I try and keep up with you guys, but I read this and it's the biblical philosophy of history and it's from Rush Dooney. Now, yes. I catch a lot of flack for 
<laughs> for quoting rush duty because yeah. i'm you know in some circles where th this kind of th thinking is uh is wrong but right. let me read this to you tell me tell me what you think uh and don't presuppose that you already agree with it because you probably already read it anyway okay. but he says quote i believe that it is a part of our modern apostasy that we have abandoned much of the world to the devil and restricted the gospel to a narrow realm. The doctrine of creation is to me the cornerstone of our faith because the Holy Trinity created all things. All things are understandable only in terms of the triune God and only he can redeem his creation. This is exactly what you're positing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Couldn't I certainly couldn't say it better than that. He's precisely correct. Um, he had as another uh, very poignant, he had a way of sort of um, making very succinct, powerful statements. Uh, he said, um, the liberals believe in history, but not in God. The fundamentalists believe in God, but not in history. We oh. have to believe in both God and history. Oh, wow that God is the God of history and he is working out his kingdom by the preaching of the gospel through the power of the spirit, extending his kingdom in all areas of thought. But you're right. If you kind of look at creation as kind of a, a little preface uh, and the, the main part is kind of beyond that, you're wrong. This requires disciplined thinking in the Bible. In fact, but I would go so far as to say that Genesis 1 and 2 are the foundation for everything that comes after, that everything that comes after is a footnote. I would also say that everything that comes after Genesis 3.15, this promise of the, the, the promise seed, everything that comes after that is basically a working out of Genesis 3.15. All of the rest of Scripture is basically working out this Jesus Christ who is crushing under his foot the serpent and his minions and the curse and all of that. That's what the Bible is about. But you wouldn't get that if you think that the first three or four chapters of Genesis are kind of like a quick preface so we can get to the really important stuff. No, the really important stuff is right there in the first three chapters. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's amazing how many people that I encounter, and I know that you do, um, and, and you get pushback from it because you're out there with a platform and you're, you're actively promoting this, this sort of holistic thing, but how many people don't get this Genesis one and two, they're not just, it's not there just so that we can argue with, you know, the geologists. It's not yes, just so right. we can argue with the Darwinians. Um, no, there is much more to it. This is the context in which all of redemptive history is playing out. And it's not merely. Uh, individual soteriology. It's that's right. God, it is that, but yes. there's more to it. We we start with a garden, but we end up with this glorious city. I mean, <laughs> no, that's right. And but there are many conservative Christians that don't understand that Genesis one and two is not in the Bible, principally to refute Darwinism. Now, Darwinism is a demonic, false ideology that must be yeah. opposed. Yeah. But <clears throat> Genesis one and two is not mainly negative. It's a positive statement about how we're to live our life. And eventually what the gospel is all about, what the kingdom of God is all about, what God is doing in this world. So it's not just about uh, the six creation days, which I clearly affirm, or the historicity of Adam and Eve, which I clearly affirm, the Genesis 6 universal flood, you better believe it. But some people seem to think if you just preserve those things, then you, you understand everything you need to understand about creation. No, you don't. No. Creation is a worldview, not just the specific aspects of it. Well, I want to respect your time, and we've gone about an hour. Um, how has the book done? Are you are you satisfied with the reach that it's had so far? I sure have, and uh, it's going to be at a number of um, conferences in the next uh, few months. We mentioned uh, one of them earlier, the um, Apologia Conference uh, down in uh, late October down in uh, Mesa, the oh. uh, Reform Con, yeah. and uh, various others. So, yeah, it's doing well. Sales are good. Uh, but I want to thank you and other interviewers that are willing to just help help me promote the book. So it's available on Amazon. You get it very easily, um, quickly. And um, I'm not a huge fan of Amazon, but it's just a quick way to – it's a platform to get books out. So, uh, yeah, that's. I hope you can get the book, and I hope you can read it. And I'd love to have any feedback anybody has. Well, I'm going to obviously put a link. I think I had posted something a couple of weeks ago and I 
I connected it to Ezra Institute. Their store is is yes. actively selling it, and those guys yes. are promoting it. Um, ReformCon, I, that popped up a couple of days ago. I didn't know anything about it, and I see that you're one of the headliners there. Joe Boots, one of the headliners. I'm thinking, I'm telling my wife, uh, I may have to go to Arizona. <laughs> I want to meet these guys who have been so influential and helpful to me. So you're speaking there. What else have you got? You just finished up the uh, Evan Runner, H. Evan Runner Academy. So that's a that's a Ezra Institute um, endeavor. Yes. What else have you got coming up? Yeah, well, the next one coming up, or finally after all the traveling and speaking the last few months, um, speaking at uh, Providence Christian College, Reformational College in Pasadena before long, and then Reform Con, and then starting next year, I'm going to be out. Uh, well, no, I shouldn't say that. I'm missing one, but uh, the um, scheduled to preach to a large pastoral group in uh, near Mexico City in uh, oh. November. So uh, if you will be in prayer about that. Um, then in January, back to the South, uh, lecturing and preaching all over Texas. So uh, uh, you'll be happy to hear that there is a Runner Academy tentatively scheduled for um, Central uh, Florida next year. Oh, cool. So um, I suspect maybe I can, if possible, I, I can see you there. So yeah, that's kind of off the top of my head. That's the stuff coming up. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, well, because I was going to ask you when when do you ever get to Florida? I mean, come on. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> you're right. That's Florida's a long way from California, but that's um, yeah. But we're yeah, part of the free of world. <laughs> no, that's you. You are free. You got a good governor down there. We don't. Uh, we don't have a good governor out here. So. No, yeah, that'll be. I haven't been in Florida for years, but I would love. You know, I actually grew up in Florida. Grew you up told me that, yeah. in Pensacola, yeah. So it'll be good to be back to Florida. Not in the summer. This is going to be, I think, in the spring. So yeah. Well, I'm looking out my window right now, and we've got the typical summer afternoon thunderstorm rolling in. So yeah. Uh, if anybody hears any thunder or lightning cracking in the background, that's what it is. Um, I got to ask you my, one of the normal questions, what are you reading right now? Anything besides your own work? Uh, yes. but what, anything particular you'd want to point people to in addition to what you've just published? Yeah, it's interesting. I'll just mention, I'm always reading a number of things, but, um, I'm reading, uh, the book by, um, oh, the author is, uh, not, um, my, my, anyway, the a new book on the fear of the Lord, uh, by the, um, author of the book, The Good God, the book on the Trinity. He is a, um, he's an evangelical scholar in England, and his name is skipping my mind. But anyway, the book is on uh, the joy and fear of the Lord, and it's just a wonderful book. I can okay. text you the, or okay. email you the yeah. title. But um, also finally getting around to reading Carl Zimmerman's classic on family and civilization. I should have read it and had it for many years, just didn't get around to reading it. Just, just remarkable. Since I'm doing a book, oh, another book I'm working on is a creational marriage. So I'm just finalizing research on that. Okay, uh, been reading a lot on that. Uh, Hebden Taylor's book on a re reformational view of marriage, and Jeffrey Bromley's on uh, a theology or God and marriage, and various others. So don't worry when I when I when that comes out, you can have me back if you want, and we'll talk That'd about be great. that one. Yeah. So to summarize, whole <clears throat> church, you're saying the church is going to succeed you're yes. you know I, you know i thought about this the other day it's it's almost like you know we're in the midst of a pre-mill church fighting a post-mill enemy uh yes these two things aren't going to work but you're not positing that the church is going to fail you're saying it's unfaithful right now because it doesn't have this full orbed creational worldview that is totally drawn from scripture based on scripture and and you're calling the church back to the fullness of what the word has given to us, but summarize what you hope this book failed church will accomplish. What do you want to see happen? Before I do that, you jog my memory about something. I'm oh. also reprinting. Thank you for this. I just announced we're reprinting a book uh, that I wrote about 22 years ago, small book called a post-millennial primer. It's just a small introduction to post-millennialism. It should be out. I hope October, November, and uh, if you remind me about it, I'll make sure to get you an inscribed copy. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, um, so, but in answer to your question, I, I hope that this book 
stimulates church leaders to recognize their many of them, the majority of them, their utter failure to think Christianly, to think worldviewishly uh, in assessing everything going on in the world. Gone are the days when a pastor could just be concerned about what was going on in his flock and reading his Bible and praying. Those are necessary. You can't be a good pastor without them. But today, because of uh, social media and uh, the pressures of a huge, massive state, what's going on in the culture is constantly, constantly impacting the church. Uh, but not only that, too many pastors have the idea that, well, my goal is simply to protect the church from the culture. As a post-millennialist, my view is not just that we should protect the church from an evil culture, that's true, but also attack the evil culture working to bring all things under the authority of Christ the King. And yes, we are going to win. And I don't just mean in eternity. There's going to be an expansion of the kingdom of God even before Christ returns. And we all should be looking forward to that day. Amen. Let me bounce off of that. I, I, that prompted me something you said there. In your um, travels and your engagement with people broadly in the church, do you see a sort of greater embrace of a post-mill eschatology than maybe you did five years ago or Absolutely. two years ago? Is That's that one of the, you know, bud, that is one of the um, beneficial byproducts of bad times and attacks to people who say, could anything good come out of the COVID lockdowns and uh, the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter and cancel culture? Yes, because God's sovereign. Uh, one thing he's brought out of it is a stronger Christian, stronger, more vocal Christians in churches. I think about this for a second. A lot of Christians, good, faithful ones, just kind of go to church on Sunday and read the word and faithful, don't really care much about the culture. Well, this has kind of awakened them. They have a yeah. true wokeness, a true biblical wokeness. They've awakened from their theological slumbers and say, man, if if we're going to uh, be survive in the world and we're going to have to win we're going to have to fight back so i think even in the last two to five years there's been an increase in those kinds of christians foisted on us by the evils of the culture uh, that is wonderful to hear because i get that kind of contact i mean people you know I, i've kind of made public that i'm post mill probably here in the last couple of years and it's not something I arrived at lightly. I don't have like some celebrity hero that I'm, oh, well, he's post mill. I'm going to be right. do that too. It's a result of the word and prayer and study and, and what really makes sense. And the fact is that I see, honestly, this is almost like a masculine Christian response. I want to fight against this stuff. And I see a lot of guys contacting me. How do we respond to this? Well, you're responding from a different kind of theology that I used to be in. Yes. You want to respond, recognize the fact that you've got this desire to respond to all the evils going on and all the barbs that are coming from the enemy at the church. There's a reason that you want to do this. This is the Lord working in you because Amen. there is a long-term hope and it requires yes. all of us to be faithful in our particular areas of responsibility. So that's encouraging to hear. I, I'm, I had not planned yes. to ask you that, but you, you prompted that. So yeah, no good. I, I, this is how that because God is sovereign, good things can come out of bad events, and God has uh, used these to bring glory to Himself and raising up a lot of soldiers and warriors for the faith and for culture. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Well, sir, what uh, you know? Closing question, then I'll leave you alone. I promise. But uh, <laughs> what did I not ask you that I should ask you that you want to answer? So go ahead. Oh, that's the, that's the most <laughs> difficult question of all. I did that to you before, I think. But. Yes, yes, you did. Um, so, uh, okay, here's a good question. Um, what really is, we talked about worldview, what really is the great theme of the Bible? And I talked about what is God, in this world is God doing. And I think the answer to that question is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the reign of God. So constantly we should be asking ourselves, if we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what does that mean in my life? Well, of course, it means uh, submitting to Christ, trusting in him for salvation. It means pressing for personal righteousness and holiness. But in the Bible, the Old Testament, righteousness is basically the same thing, the same word as justice. So mm -hmm. to, to seek the kingdom of God is to seek for justice in the world. 
we hear a lot about social justice. There's nothing inherently wrong with social justice as long as it's biblical social justice, which is not how the term is, is used today. But to press the kingdom of God is to press the justice of God, his righteousness, according to his holy law in the world. That's what God is doing in the world by Jesus Christ, pressing his kingdom. And uh, that's what we're called to do as his co-laborers. Amen. Well, sir, thank you so much. Thank you for thank this you book. Bud. People need to go get Failed Church. We're going to link to it. Uh, I, I pray that people read it, digest it, even if they need a dictionary beside them, <laughs> they read some of it, because it's very provocative. It's very, it's sorely needed and, and pray that the Lord uses it uh, as I'm sure he will to convict men in pulpits and, and, and uh, people in pews to realize there is a kingdom at work and call to be engaged with it. So, and, but thank you for what you're doing, my friend. Hope I can meet you soon. I look person. forward to it. Thank you so yep. much for your time. God bless you, buddy. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You are now leaving the Bud Zone. Thank you so much for listening. I would also encourage you to listen to a podcast that I happen to co-host with my pastor, Dr. Andrew Smith, called Truth For You. You can find Truth For You on the Christian podcast community. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, no doctrines have been harmed during the recording of this episode. God bless you.